Is the assurance of Russia intending to invade Ukraine as ironclad as the promise of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Is there a peaceful resolution that will spare everyone a lot of pain? How was the mural Maidan and the overthrow of President Yanukovych actually orchestrated by the United States? How was the rise and development of ultranationalists and neo-Nazis precipitating the decline of the Eastern European power far more than anything planned in Moscow? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we focus on the growing friction between the United States and Russia over the fate of Ukraine with three great guests. In our first half hour, commentator and columnist Scott Ritter expresses his thoughts about NATO's inability to thwart the Russians and opens up a possible face-saver for all forces involved. In our second half hour, commentator Paul Craig Roberts opens up about the West's involvement in the popular movement that overthrew Yanukovych and about the choice by Primeans to actually rejoin the Russian Federation. Finally, in our second half hour, we will hear from a journalist and activist and observer actually living in Kiev named Dmitry Kovalevich about the racist groups that sprung up after the Maidan and how all politics, journalism and policing in Ukraine has been affected for the worse. On this week's program, Countdown to Apocalypse Part 2, A Dark Future for Ukraine. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 22, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. As the clinical trials preceding the rollout excluded pregnant women, these would have been the first pregnant and lactating women to have ever received the vaccines. Table 6 states that of 270 unique pregnancies that were exposed to the vaccine, quote, no outcome was provided for 238 pregnancies, unquote. This leaves 32 pregnancies with known outcomes. Pfizer's report states that there were 23 spontaneous abortions or miscarriages, two premature births with neonatal death, two spontaneous abortions with intrauterine death, one spontaneous abortion with neonatal death, and one pregnancy with normal outcome. That means that of 32 pregnancies with known outcome, 28 resulted in fetal death. That comes from the article, FOIA docs reveal Pfizer shot caused avalanche of miscarriages, stillborn babies, by Celeste McGovern, 
post-January 19th, originally published in LifeSite News. The crisis in Myanmar is not new and will certainly not have a quick solution. Despite this reality, some kind of concession in ASEAN will still need to be found. In the worst-case scenario, if the path towards a solution is not opened, a rift, if not even a split, will emerge in ASEAN. If ASEAN countries do not come to an agreement on Myanmar, Western forces could take advantage of the internal crises to dominate the association that is becoming increasingly closer to China. The West has repeatedly used events in Myanmar to put pressure on ASEAN since the country became a member state in 1997. That comes from the article, ASEAN's discord over Myanmar could expose association to external dominance by Paul Antonopoulos, posted January 19th, originally published on Infobricks. These media have three characteristics. First, they give us the impression that human rights violation takes place only in those countries which are not friendly to Washington. They try to tell us that Washington-friendly countries do not violate human rights. Second, the Western media limit their critics to the violation of civil and political rights such as oppression of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. They do not talk about the violation of economic, social, and cultural rights. Foods, clothing, public housing, public health, public education, which China and North Korea are trying to respect and protect. What makes me disturbed is that the violation of human rights is globalized and getting worse. That comes from the article, the Globalization of Human Rights Violations, the Right to Live a Dignified and Decent Living, by Professor Joseph H. Chung, posted January 19th. Along with oil and gas, now defense production is targeted. Von der Leyen, as German defense minister, was widely blamed for allowing German defense to collapse to a catastrophic state. In their now one-sided pursuit of their insane Agenda 2030 and Zero Carbon Agenda, the Biden administration and the EU are putting their industry on a deliberate road to destruction well before the end of this decade. Is this in turn driving the current NATO agenda towards Russia in Ukraine, Belarus, Armenia, and now Kazakhstan? If the NATO powers that be know they will lack the basic in-depth military-industrial infrastructure in the near future, do they think it better to provoke a possible war with Russia now to eliminate a possible resistor to their de-industrial agenda? That comes from the article, Why do NATO states commit energy harakiri, green zero carbon madness, industrial collapse? By F. William Engdahl, posted January 19th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The subject of the scan 
between Russia and the U.S. over Ukraine is now becoming a dominant international issue. We notice a lot of information about the problems of dealing with this dangerous President Vladimir Putin, very little about the threat posed by America. To give us an alternative to the mainstream, we're delighted to have with us Scott Ritter to share some thoughts about the situation. Scott Ritter is a U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, former U.N. Chief Weapons Inspector from 1991 to 1998, and is currently engaged as a commentator and columnist on Huffington Post, RT Op-Ed, Consortium News, and the American Conservative. He joins us now to expand a little on the dire straits we're traveling as the tensions between Russia and the U.S. are soaring. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, in 2003, the U.S. attacked Iraq on the phony excuse it had weapons of mass destruction, and you were one of the people explaining that was not the case. Turns out you were right. Clearly, they are no, not above waging wars or anything else on false pretexts. Then in 2022, they say Russia is planning an invasion of Ukraine, which they claim is not the reason for the assembly of 100,000 troops there. Do you have a sense of deja vu related to this current incidents uh, on the border with Ukraine? Uh, not really. Uh, one reason is that in 2003, we were actively pursuing conflict with Iraq. Um, uh, in 2022, the last thing we want is conflict with Russia. I mean, that is uh, an absolute certainty. Uh, no matter what the rhetoric is coming out of the White House or out of the State Department from either Biden or Blinken, uh, the Pentagon is whispering in their ears saying, we cannot fight and prevail in a conflict with Russia uh, with the forces we currently have available to us. Russia would win. Um, not only is the Pentagon saying this, but we, we've heard, of course, Biden and Blinken say that the US won't be going to war in support of Ukraine if Russia invades, but we will strike back with massive sanctions. Uh, except the Department of Treasury is whispering in Biden's ear saying those sanctions will hurt the United States and Europe far more than they'll hurt Russia. So we literally have no options. We've backed ourselves into a rhetorical corner, uh, you know, from which we, we don't seem to have an exit. Uh, uh, but we know that whatever exit strategy we pursue uh, that is consistent with the narrative that we've uh, shaped um, it will be bad for the United States. We've we've said that uh, we cannot tolerate uh, Russia dictating uh, terms of uh, coexistence with its neighbors that shut the door on NATO's open door policy. That is, NATO says that every sovereign state um, that meets the requirements of NATO membership should be allowed to join NATO and that Russia doesn't get a veto to this. This, of course, is part of you know, the, the case Russia makes for the current crisis, saying that, you know, the, the Russia has spent 30 years watching the United States, Europe and NATO lie about its intent, uh, you know, saying that, you know, of course, in the discussions in 1989, 1990 between James Baker and Mikhail Gorbachev about the unification of Germany, uh, Baker assured Gorbachev at that time, the president of the Soviet Union, that NATO would not expand one inch eastward. Well, we now know that that's a lie. NATO's expanded right up to the borders of Russia, and now they're seeking to incorporate Ukraine and Georgia. Um, 
you know, two former Soviet republics that if they joined NATO would basically allow NATO to have encircled Russia, uh, a situation that Russia will never allow. Uh, so Russia has demanded not only that NATO never allow Ukraine or Georgia in, but also NATO re-examine its military posture, uh, both in terms of forces accumulated uh, on or near the Russian border in Eastern Europe, and also the manner in which NATO exercises its military power in areas that are um, adjacent to Russia, for instance, the Black Sea or the Baltic Sea. So, you know, we, we do have a situation. I think the one thing that I could say that is uh, that links the, the situation in 2003 and the situation today is the inability or unwillingness or both of the United States uh, to have a fact-based narrative. We we seem to seek to demonize people using um, manufactured data, misinformation, lies, distortions, uh, because we're afraid of the truth, because the truth does not conform to the policy statements put out by uh, you know, the, 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 the presidential administrations, whether it be that of you know, George W. Bush in 2003 or Joe Biden today. Well, Russia is, is running out of patience, as you know, and, and, and meanwhile, the U.S. president is saying an attack by Russia could be launched at any moment. There's a, an image uh, circulating in the press right now saying that uh, they, they have the plans that says that uh, if Russia does engage Ukraine, and then they would try to install a puppet in Kiev, and, but they would encounter Ukrainian uh, guerrillas armed by the U.S. and the U.K. and get bogged down in another Afghanistan. Now, would you say that this is the, the situation we're looking at, or, or do you see the, the actual military actions uh, moving in a different way? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll repeat what the Russians have said, which is they have no intention of invading Ukraine. Uh, that's not in their game plan. They don't want to do it. It would be counterproductive. Um, you know, and, and, and that's the last thing that the, the last option they would, would pursue. But they also are saying that, you know, if given no other choice, have no other option, then they will need to lance the boil. The boil, of course, being Ukraine, Ukraine post-2014. It's uh, hilarious to hear the United States talk about Russia installing a puppet government when that's exactly what the United States and the European Union did after the events of uh, the Maidan revolution in uh, January, February 2014, where uh, the duly elected president of Ukraine, um, Viktor Yanukovych was ousted uh, with violence by a, uh, you know, a neo-Nazi affiliated organization uh, that that was supported by the the United States. Uh, one only needs to recall Victoria Nuland at that time, a, um, a State Department official responsible for the Eastern Euro European portfolio, when she uh, talked about. Um, Yats, my boy Yats and his uh, other associate Yats, of course, being a Ukrainian uh, politician that the United States had handpicked and trained uh, to assume power, political power, once Yanukovych is ousted. So, you know, the United States puts puppet governments in place. Uh, this doesn't mean that Russia you know, would not like to see a pro-Russian government in place in Kiev, but they're not going to do it by force. Uh, the last thing Russia is going to do is occupy Ukraine. Now, if Russia is compelled to move in, I, I, I use the term lance the boil, they're going to get rid of this infection that is the current government in Ukraine. They're, they're going to do it by destroying the military and destroying Ukraine. 
Uh, you don't need to occupy Ukraine to destroy it. There will be a, a decisive military thrust that annihilates the Ukrainian military. Uh, Russia will occupy the territory that is populated by pro-Russian um, majorities, uh, not just Donbass and Lugansk, but also um, areas around Odessa and Mariupol. They'll, they'll create a land bridge between Russia and Crimea. Um, and that'll, that'll be held by Russia in perpetuity, never to be returned to Ukraine. But they're not going to occupy Ukraine. Um, and the notion of a Ukrainian resistance, you know, this, this, this is absurd. It's a fiction put forward by uh, the CIA and others as, a, as an effort to deter Russia. But one needs to understand that if the CIA is working with Ukrainian intelligence and security services, the Russians know everything about it. The fact that you and I are talking about it shows that it's not a covert operation. Uh, it's been revealed in the American media. Russia has undoubtedly been following this for uh, some time now. And if Russia decides to lance the boil, any forces trained by the CIA will be located and annihilated within days. So there will be no resistance. There will be no Russian occupation. All there will be is the decisive destruction of Ukraine as a modern nation state. And that's the last thing Russia wants to do, given no other option. For instance, if Ukraine, now that they're being armed to the teeth by the United States and its uh, NATO allies, if Ukraine suddenly feels emboldened to take action against uh, the, the Russian separatists in Lugansk and Donbass, uh, Russia will move in not only to defend those territories, but to destroy the Ukrainian military and destroy the Ukrainian government. And this is a reality that nobody can change. If Russia decides to do this, it will happen. There's nothing anybody can do to stop it. Well, you, you said that, uh, that uh, Russia you know, going into Ukraine is like the, their last uh, of their list of options. But I mean, what if the United States, say, were to institute something like a false flag action? Because U.S. Are, are clearly blaming Russia for instigating uh, cyber attacks last week. But could the U.S. institute a false flag of their own and blame Russia? And that way, you know. Or, well, I mean, that's 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 something people speculated about. But. I will say this, my experience with Russians in the past and my knowledge and understanding of Russia today is they are extremely sophisticated diplomatically and militarily when it comes to national security affairs. These are not amateurs. Uh, a false flag is something that's done to fool somebody into taking an action that they might not otherwise say. Russia will not be fooled by anything. Russia is firmly... Uh, in control of the information data coming out of Ukraine. They know what's real. They know what's fake. They know what's planted by the U.S. So any false flag that would be attempted by the United States would be identified early on by Russia as such. And Russia would act not in a manner prompted by a, a false flag, but in a manner which is pursuant to Russia's legitimate national security needs. So you know, a false flag is something that amateurs in Washington, D.C. talked about. Um, and if they sought to implement it, believe me, the professionals in Moscow would see right through it and would not allow that to dictate uh, their actions. The actions taken by Russia will be taken on a timetable determined by Russia in support of Russian goals and objectives, not uh, influenced by outside parties. You mentioned in one of your essays for RT op-ed 
uh, a peaceful resolution, which could not that would not be considered by the U.S., but it, it would stand some chance of, of actually interesting not just Ukraine, but uh, also Georgia. Um, could you maybe expand on, on, on your uh, proposal? Well, it's just a, it's 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 an expansion of um, a, a a statement made by Dmitry Peskov, who is the spokesperson to the Kremlin. Again, when I say that Russia is extremely sophisticated uh, and mature, uh, what I mean by that is that their Kremlin spokesperson will not say something unless the words have been carefully chosen and have been vetted by the appropriate agencies in Russia to ensure that there is a policy. Uh, that can back it up. So Peskov's not going to get out ahead of the curve, so to speak. And when Peskov spoke of resolving the situation in Georgia, the the, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, the current independent nation of Georgia, uh, he spoke about you know two breakaway provinces, the province of um, of Abkhazia and the province of South Ossetia. And he spoke about the presence of Russian peacekeeping troops there. And what he said is that in order to withdraw the peacekeepers. The underlying tensions that cause the peacekeepers to be there must be resolved first. This is the first time Russia's even talked about the potential of resolve of withdrawing peacekeepers. So Russia has opened the door saying there are conditions which could be put together that could cause us to withdraw our troops from Abkhazia and South Ossetia, thereby opening the door for the reabsorption of these breakaway provinces back into uh, the, 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 the the sovereign uh, territorial integrity of Georgia. Um, this this is an important statement. Now, one of those preconditions uh, would have to be Georgia never joining NATO. Um, that this Russia will never allow Georgia to join NATO. Russia will never allow Ukraine to join NATO. So it's an absurdity to speak of this 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 possibility. Neither nation meets the requirements of NATO membership, nor will they ever meet the requirements of NATO membership so long as there is territorial disputes. Um, NATO has something called Article Five, which is the 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 you know the the, the joint defense uh, of of nations. You attack one, you attack all. If NATO were to allow, for instance, Ukraine to join with Crimea as an outstanding territorial issue, that means on day one NATO goes to war, and that's just not going to happen. So Ukraine and Georgia will never join NATO. This is needs to be understood. Now, we can have a conflict in perpetuity, or we can seek a compromise. And one compromise would be to meet NATO's requirements of not uh, reversing course on their open door policy. That means that NATO won't have to, 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 to embarrass itself, humiliate itself by ending a policy that it says is, is, is part and parcel of who they are. If you qualify for NATO membership, you should be allowed to join NATO. NATO's not going to back away from that. Uh, Russia will never allow Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO. Uh, but to resolve some of these things, what if one of the conditions were that Georgia and Ukraine opted on their own volition to be neutral? That is, they say we will never join NATO. We will be neutral. This neutrality will be guaranteed by a treaty, something Russia has demanded. And in exchange for this neutrality, Russia helps create the conditions in which uh, territorial integrity is restored. Uh, in, in Georgia, that would be the return of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. In uh, Ukraine, that would be um, you know, the, the return of Lugansk and Donbass to Ukrainian sovereignty. Crimea will never be returned. That's just not going to happen. Uh, it is Russia now. It'll be Russia forever. 
Um, but maybe there's some face-saving mechanisms that could be put in place that give the Ukrainian government sort, some sort of outreach potential to the remaining Ukrainian population minority in, uh, in Crimea. The point is, you know, the United States, instead of taking an absolutist uh, position, um, should seek to compromise, should seek a path of diplomatic compromise with Russia that achieves both objectives without this uh, push towards conflict. Recently, uh, Blinken has been going uh, around the world and he's been talking about unifying NATO, saying that if NATO's unified, Russia's all by itself and, and that that unity, there's strength. I'm wondering how you know, if push comes to shove and then you know, we end up with with sanctions on Russia and then there are some something similar happens uh, to Europe. I, I'm wondering how unified, how, how will the situation look? Uh, say a year from now, in terms of the unity of NATO and the the weakness of Russia. Well, first of all, there is no weakness in Russia. Russia is very strong. Russia is strong militarily. Russia is strong diplomatically, and Russia is stronger than we think uh, economically. The weakness is all Europe, NATO, the United States. Uh, you know, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, we have allowed uh, the NATO military to um, to 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 decay. Uh, right now, NATO, in response to uh, concerns about Russian military buildup in uh, Kaliningrad and uh, in the situation in Belarus, has mobilized uh, four what they call battle groups, a big name for small units. Uh, these are battalions, reinforced battalion-sized units of 1,200 men each. Uh, they're, they're deployed in the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. They're deployed in Poland. Uh, around 5,000 troops. Um, in order to create these battle groups, NATO had to cannibalize uh, its, its forces. For instance, for Germany to put an armored uh, battalion uh, in Lithuania, uh, they had to cannibalize the totality of their armored force. Uh, they can't get a brigade out of barracks right now because nothing works, nothing's maintained. Um, it, it's 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 despicable if you're a military professional. The French are the same. The British are pathetic. Um, the, 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 there is no NATO military today capable of standing up to Russia. That, and the, moreover, the expense required to rebuild NATO back to its, for instance, 1988 uh, you know, uh, standard um, is prohibitive. Uh, no, no European nation wants to spend that kind of money. No European nation's economy could withstand that shock. So right off the bat, we have to understand that NATO is incapable of confronting Russia militarily. The only thing NATO has is nuclear weapons. And that statement alone should scare people. Um, yeah. Economically, Europe is totally dependent upon Russia for its energy. Now, Russia has said, we're going to be a dependent supplier of energy. We will never violate a contract. But if NATO and the European Union go along with the American uh, desire, for instance, to cut Russia off from the SWIFT banking system, uh, by doing so, NATO will, the, the European countries will be violating method of payment that is detailed in the co current contracts it has for energy supply from Russia. So it'll be Europe violating the contract, which will give Russia every pretext to terminate the supply. And once Russia cuts off the spigots, uh, the European economy collapses. They freeze. Their 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 industries cease to function. Um, and and Europe is ostensibly 
a conglomerate of democratic nations, meaning that the current leaders in Europe were elected by their constituents. And once the constituents start freezing to death and starving, um, the, 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 the outlook for these democratically elected uh, leaders is slim to none. Uh, no, no political leader in a democracy will commit political suicide by embarking on a policy course that, with a guaranteed outcome. Uh, and that's what happens if the Europe buys into the American sanctions. We saw Joe Biden hint at this in his confused statement yesterday in his press conference, where he said, you know, if, if Russia limits its incursion, we might have trouble convincing our allies to go along with certain methods. But if Russia comes in big, we'll have no problem. Well, guess what, Joe? If Russia goes in big, you're going to have a huge problem because nobody in Europe's going to back your sanctions because it is economic suicide. So, no, Russia's in a very strong position today. It's NATO, the United States, and Europe who have the weak hand. Mm. Real, I really admire your incisive thinking. Uh, Scott, it's always a pleasure having someone with your background on the show. Uh, we'll continue to monitor how it unfolds. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our guest was Scott Ritter. He's a, currently a columnist for several sites. He spoke to us from Del Mar in New York. In the next half hour, we're discussing changes in Ukraine and how the departure of President Yanukovych in 2014 was actually orchestrated by the United States. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Joining us is Paul Craig Roberts. Dr. Paul Craig Roberts was Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury in the Reagan administration, a member of the U.S. Congressional Staff, Associate Editor and Columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's a Chairman of the Institute for Political Economy. He was also outspoken on the situation in Ukraine and was one of the writers profiled in the Stephen Lenman edited 2014 book entitled Flashpoint in Ukraine, How the U.S. Drive for Hegemony Risks World War III. Dr. Roberts, welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. Let's talk about the Maidan. Uh, it rose up in response to protests by ordinary Ukrainians in late 2013. The pushback on the part of the state was brutal. Eventually, the Maidans grew and became massive. Then in February, there was an exchange of fire between the soldiers and the crowd. The, cur the current president, who was considered corrupt, fled the scene and, and a new leader and new elections were put in place. Fill in some of the gaps in the background of what most people don't know about the Maidan and the changeover of power. Oh, okay, Michael. I think the summary you gave um, is uh, not accurate. I don't think there were, um, I don't think the uh, Maidan events uh, originated in uh, spontaneous or real protests. They were organized. Uh, the um, State Department was heavily involved, as was the CIA. We know that uh, Victoria Newland was uh, very heavily involved, as was the American ambassador in Kiev. You know, we listened to the telephone conversations between them, and we know all sorts of uh, other information. This was um, uh, an effort on the part of Washington to uh, seize 
the Russian naval base in Crimea. That's their Black Sea base. Um, when um, um, Ukraine was granted its independence from Russia with the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia was granted long-term lease on Crimea, which uh, the Crimea has been part of Russia for centuries. So uh, when the Russians perceived that uh, there was a regime change, uh, that the new regime had neo-Nazi elements, uh, very unfriendly to Russians. Uh, Russians were being accosted in the streets and, and um, the Russian language was being banned and all sorts of just anti-Russian tone. And they realized that, uh, that this would be the end of their presence in the Black Sea and um, uh, some sort of referendum was held in Crimea and the people voted about 97% of a massive turnout uh, to be reunited with Russia where they had been for centuries. Uh, so Russia did this and this has been called ever since in the Western media um, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm. So that is the, uh, the real story. Um, uh, Washington, of course, ended up with Ukraine, uh, minus Crimea, and then minus the Donbass region, because that is a heavily uh, Russian-populated region, and uh, they did not accept the coup that Washington had enacted in Kiev and declared their independence. They also asked to be reassorbed in Russia, where they had been for centuries <clears throat> uh, prior to the uh, breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, and were refused. Um, there have been various efforts of uh, Ukraine to attack those provinces and reconquer them, and they have not been successful. Uh, uh, Russia has not intervened directly, but does supply them with, uh, with weapons. So what use is Washington trying to make of Ukraine now? Well, uh, obviously, anything that can uh, threaten Russia to anything that can give Washington pressure points on Russia, um, Anything that can be done to destabilize Russia, to distract Russia from American operations elsewhere, uh, will be done and has been done. Uh, American arms have poured into Ukraine along with American military personnel training Ukrainians in their use. Most alarming to the Russians is the uh, statement uh, that Washington uh, is considering uh, putting Ukraine into NATO. Now, the Russians are already troubled by American missile bases in Poland and Romania. They're very much troubled by that. They've pointed out over and over that the American uh, excuse for those bases which is to counter incoming ICBMs from Iran is nonsensical. 
that Iran, Iran has no such weapons, and moreover, they would not be <laughs> they would not be attacking Europe with them if they had them, and that these these bases, uh, which allegedly are for intercepting incoming missiles, can just as well be used to launch nuclear missiles, and so they're not happy about that, and they certainly would not accept any more such bases in the Ukraine. And therefore, they have expressed very forcibly their security concerns to the United States and to NATO last week in talks. So far, the Americans have turned a deaf ear and a blind eye, and we didn't, we haven't heard. Yeah. And the response has been to make Russia feel even less secure. Okay. Could you, uh, like you mentioned, for instance, uh, Victoria Newland uh, before, and uh, some of the, uh, maybe the situation with the, uh, you know, like the, the exchange of, of fire. I, I just wanted to maybe just, you know, concretize that a little bit. Exactly how did they, uh, what did she do in particular that that really concretizes it for you and and for everyone else that uh, that the U.S. was actually supporting this thing that it wasn't just uh, you know uh, 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 taking use of it if you know what I mean. The um, behavior of uh, the State Department uh, through uh, Victoria Newland and the American ambassador in Kiev. Uh, was revealed when the uh, telephone uh, conversation they had uh, uh, somehow got loose and was uh, online and everyone could listen to it. Uh, it shows that uh, Victoria Newland and the American ambassador uh, at work picking who will be the next leader in Ukraine. So, and they discussed various people, and Victoria Newland says who's going to be the uh, successor uh, to the president who um, who uh, through his unwillingness to use force against the revolution had to flee the country for his life. Um, the Russians at the time were preoccupied with the Sochi Olympics. In fact, uh, Putin was in the in Sochi on the Black Sea at the Olympics uh, when all of this occurred. So clearly, the Russians weren't paying any attention. They weren't minding their backyard, and the coup happened uh, therefore without any intervention on their part. Um, so the uh, the violence was introduced by. Um, neo-Nazi elements supported by the CIA who shot uh, people on both sides. They shot some of the unarmed policemen and they shot some of the protesters. It turns out that many of the protesters had been paid to come protest and had responded to advertisements that they would be paid in euros for appearing in Kiev to protest. And protesters had come from outside the country. 
to uh, be paid as protesters. And so in in that sense, even um, the protesters were fake. So many of them weren't even Ukrainian and they were out there collecting money. So that's how uh, that event happened. And uh, and, uh, the telephone uh, uh, intercepts uh, show that. They were all over the internet at the time. Uh, I don't know if they're still available or if the tech companies have uh, taken them all down, you know, with the digital revolution uh, and it and it being in such few hands, we have Orwell's uh, memory hole. <laughs> they can put anything in it they want. But uh, enough people are familiar with the uh, telephone conversation to know uh, that it happened. We are sitting on the verge of a, a major incident affecting Ukraine between Russia and NATO. Um, and it's possible that, uh, well, that if the U.S. and Russian lines hold, that that seems to be uh, the situation. But what can people in NATO countries, what, what do they really need to know to avoid any catastrophic incident, uh, a blunder or possibly even World War Three from unfolding. How, how can we, you know, climb down? Oh, it's very simple, and they should already know it. Uh, Russia asks for security guarantees. So all you have to do is give it to them. Hmm. The Russian, the Russians are completely correct. Uh, security has to be mutual. If it's not mutual, there's no security. There's instability, and therefore the Russians say. We don't want instability, do we? We want stability. You've made us insecure. We can't live with it. We're not going to live with it. So address it diplomatically as we ask. Otherwise, we will have to address it with force, which we don't want to do. So all the uh, NATO uh, countries have to do is to tell Washington, listen, give them the security guarantee. It's a simple thing. The whole problem disappears. Give them the security guarantee. That's just, you have to, you see, all this problem came because Clinton, pushed by the neoconservatives, broke the word of the United States government given to Russia, that we will not move NATO one inch to the east. This was the promise the United States made to Gorbachev in exchange for Gorbachev preventing the reunification of Germany. So this, it it is this action by President Clinton pushed by the neoconservatives that has caused this problem now. And the Russians say, you know, we've been living with it a long time. We've been talking, trying to talk, trying to get your attention. Finally, we forced last week's meetings. We have made it as clear as it can be made. This is not an acceptable situation. We don't want Ukraine. We want security. That's 
That's the situation. What is the American response? We are not going to give it to you. It's up to us whether we put Ukraine in NATO and our missile bases are defensive and blah, blah, blah. And the Russians say, okay, they don't care about our security. They're not going to give us security. So we have to take countervailing action. My own opinion is this does not involve an invasion of Ukraine. They don't need to invade Ukraine. I think the Americans are trying to provoke it, but it's not the Russians intent. What do they want Ukraine for? It's a, it's a busted, corrupt country. They, they, they don't want other people's troubles. All they want from the Americans is a security guarantee. You'll stop putting bases on our border and the bases that are there, you will remove. That's all they're asking. It's quite reasonable. There's no reason for a dispute, much less World War III. That's about all I have time for. But Dr. Roberts, thank you very much for, for sharing uh, this information with our audience. Yes, well, thank you for the opportunity, Michael. And, and I appreciate the efforts you make for people. Paul Craig Roberts is an international analyst and, and chairman of the Institute for Political Economy. For more of a view from inside Ukraine, I'm joined by Dmitry Kovalevich. Dmitry Kovalevich is a Ukrainian-based journalist and left activist. He's the editor of Leva.com.ua and the go-to person on Facebook for information on Ukraine. He's also a monthly contributor on Ukraine goings-on at the site NewColdWar.org. He's based in Kiev. I asked him to comment on speculation of Western involvement in the Euromaidan and other factors. Eight years ago, it was... Uh, uh, a matter of uh, free trade zone uh, with uh, European with the European Union. It's uh, bad for you uh, for Ukrainian ec economy, uh, and it was promoted by the United States and the European Union uh, uh, jointly. Uh, so, so that actually to uh, plant the Ukrainian resources and uh, get a. Um, uh, market for uh, Western goods uh, uh, on the European market. <laughs> uh, so when uh, the former president of Ukraine, uh, Yanukovych, refused to sign it, or rather delayed for some months, uh, there immediately some dozen students uh, on a square uh, 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 who, who were supported by the far-right uh, radicals, pro-fascist pro radicals, who uh, organized uh, riots, caused uh, police response, uh, and uh, uh, they were uh, supported uh, by the U.S. Embassy. U.S. Uh, uh, Victoria Nguyen from uh, U.S. State Department personally visited uh, those protesters and, uh, and supported that. Then we got to know that uh, uh, all uh, U.S. financed uh, uh, non-government organizations uh, uh, also took part in it. So, in, in fact, we, uh, we have that uh, 
those uh, groups who organized a coup uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, all were financed either by USA or Canada or European Union in general, uh, in general by Western uh, uh, NATO, uh, NATO countries. Do you know much about the ultra-nationalists and then the racist neo-Nazis? How visible were they in the past before 2014 and what caused them to explode in terms of their significance as influencing affairs in Ukraine? Before 2014, uh, they were uh, uh, very marginal. There were pro probably uh, a couple thousands of, of them, I mean pro-Nazi uh, uh, radicals. But then uh, the former uh, President Viktor Yanukovych began tacitly to support them. Uh, he was advised that uh, Ukrainians would never uh, support uh, far-right Ukrainian nationalism and pro-Nazi uh, radical uh, groups, uh, and he can get a better result uh, if uh, his sparring partners on elections uh, would be uh, far-right radicals. So he closed his eyes on the development, on their training basis, uh, because he was advised by his advisors and also by U.S. advisors that he should not afraid of them. Ukrainian uh, society would never support those pro-Nazi or, or fascist uh, groups, uh, as he was advised. Uh, secretly, basically, he uh, he supported them as a convenient uh, uh, electoral partners. But they decided not to wait for elections, as they knew potential bad results on elections. They decided to seize power by force. And when we pointed for Western media that those are fascists, they uh, uh, closed their eyes because those fascists uh, uh, promoted economic agenda uh, beneficial for, for the USA, for the EU and other Western countries. Mm. Could you talk about the role of these ultra-nationalists, uh, not just in the streets, but also policing, uh, the military, journalism, and so on? After 2014, many Ukrainian uh, uh, policemen, uh, officers of armed forces, uh, 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 were not loyal to the new government, post-coup post government, uh, uh, which seized power. Numbers of former Ukrainian uh, police and uh, militaries, they shifted sides. In Crimea, for example, uh, some 85% of all militaries and policemen uh, just turned to Russia and uh, they uh, uh, they are now part of Russian forces in Crimea. Uh, in Donbass area, uh, the core of the um, uh, Donbass rebels uh, were also former Ukrainian militaries and former Ukrainian policemen and, uh, who shifted uh, sides. They mutinied against new power. In uh, 2014, uh, the new authorities uh, uh, started uh, Purges in those uh, in security uh, uh, service in police uh, uh, and militaries, uh, firing uh, thousands and hiring uh, of, uh, 
people from ultranationalist uh, circles uh, as uh, more loyal to, to the new authorities. Uh, uh, first, they were, those were uh, uh, extra-legal uh, uh, volunteers battalions who were not in the army, not in police, uh, actually uh, without any legality. They acted uh, and they were sent against uh, Donbass uh, rebels. Uh, uh, the, it was, uh, although it was beyond any law. The U.S. advised them to include those extra-legal nationalists, uh, uh, ultra-nationalist uh, battalions into legal armed forces of Ukraine. Uh, so now they are uh, not just uh, uh, ultra-nationalist uh, uh, battalion like Tornado, uh, uh, Azov or Aidar. Uh, 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 they are uh, officially just regiments or battalions of Ukrainian official armed forces. Some uh, ultra-nationalists uh, uh, got high positions uh, in Ukrainian uh, police departments. In fact, uh, the ultra-nationalist forces, uh, uh, they influence Ukrainian politics uh, not so much uh, uh, from uh, uh, legal structures, not so much from parliament. They have extra uh, uh, extra legal power. They close media, uh, 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 which are oppositionists uh, to the current authorities, uh, just uh, uh, attacking, assaulting them, kidnapping journalists, uh, uh, or uh, uh, attacking uh, some social protests. And uh, police uh, just doesn't react to it. I can uh, uh, compare it to the paramilitary. Uh, uh, forces in in Colombia, uh, in Latin America, I mean, to stormtroopers in in early Nazi Germany, for for, for instance, uh, uh, when uh, uh, an opposition uh, uh, opposition media uh, or social protests uh, are uh, dispersed uh, or attacked, uh, not by uh, official police, uh, uh, not by official army, uh, but uh, uh, by extra-legal uh, gangs of uh, fascists. Oh. So what do you know about political options in Ukraine? I mean, are there more or less options for the people in, in, in elections since 2014? To begin with, first, uh, there was... Uh, uh, Communist Party uh, uh, banned in Ukraine. Uh, then uh, the party of the former President Viktor Yanukovych, uh, the party of regions, was also banned uh, in, in in Ukraine. Now there is uh, a split from uh, uh, from that party of regions. Uh, uh, of the former president, uh, the, uh, it, it is called Opposition Platform for Life. The, the U.S. Uh, last year sanctioned its leaders. Uh, then uh, President Zelensky imposed sanctions uh, uh, against uh, the leaders of his party, uh, closed uh, uh, TV uh, channels, uh, which belong to the politicians from this party, uh, actually uh, imposing sanctions without a court decision. Uh, just President Zelensky uh, uh, signs uh, uh, sanctions which uh, uh, close uh, 
TV stations, uh, uh, journals, uh, parties uh, acting uh, without a court decision, just basing uh, on the fact that some sanctions were imposed by the by the USA. And moreover, those opposition parties regularly assault their offices are regularly assaulted by the ultra-nationalists. Their politicians are beaten or forced to exile. So Ukrainian citizens are forced to to have a choice only between two pro-U.S. and pro-nationalist parties of Zelensky and Poroshenko, who lead the same policy. It's neoliberal policy of of reforms, so-called reforms, neoliberal reforms, raising prices, prices raising taxes. There is no many protests, social protests in Ukraine. Uh, because uh, first, people uh, uh, fear uh, of those uh, ultra-nationalist gangs, uh, uh, but uh, also people are forced uh, uh, to migrate. Uh, uh, from uh, uh, 2014, uh, some uh, six or seven million Ukrainians uh, migrated, at least half of them to Russia, uh, uh, another half to uh, European uh, countries, mainly in Poland, uh, and they work uh, there. Uh, even now, when our miners on strike, they demand uh, to pay their salary debts, they are advised officially by uh, by the authorities, so, uh, what do you want at your home country still? Just get, uh, do my weight. Uh, you can have a job in Poland, you can have a job in Spain, you can have a job in Russia, in Latvia. Social tensions is actually uh, result by ousting uh, people, uh, especially working people, uh, from the country. Only uh, during the last year, uh, 2021, uh, uh, our country uh, uh, left uh, about one million people. Uh, only with a, only within one year, most people, most working people, prefer not to fight against those uh, armed ultranationalist gang, uh, gangs, uh, but uh, just to move move away from the country. Okay. Well, we well, I'm afraid we're at the end of our time, but I really want to thank you for uh, sharing, you know, some of the thinking uh, inside the country itself. And uh, you know, basically giving us a, a, a state of the mood of your country and the, the profound uh, new uh, challenges uh, facing uh, everyone. Um, hopefully, we'll keep in touch in uh, coming weeks. Thank you so much for joining me, Dmitri. Oh, okay, thank you so much. That was Dmitri Kovalovich, a Ukrainian journalist and left activist. He's based in Kiev. On our next show, we'll have a look at the sins of the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. Join us in seven days. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. 
I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.